When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. And my book just out this fall is Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. Why do people seem to talk funny in old movies? It's getting to the point where old movies, if we consider that to refer roughly to American film before about 1965, are increasingly distant in time from us. These are people who are mostly very dead, and their speech sounds downright exotic to us, especially the further back you go. And the question is, why? Why are they talking like that? Well, there are three main things. One of them is, I think often when we wonder why people in old movies are talking like that. What we mean is something that's going on with the R's. And linguists call this R-lessness. And what it is is that you drop or vastly distort your R's at the end of syllables. Instead of corner, corner. That's a lot of what makes somebody seem like they talk like that back in the old days. And a beautiful example is Betty Davis. Nobody we know likely sounds like her. So, for example, this is a clip from what I think of as her best film, All About Eve, where she's playing Margot Channing. And listen to the way she, as Margot, says mother and theater. Eve, this is an old friend of Mr. DeWitt's mother, Miss Caswell, Miss Harrington. Miss Caswell, how do you do? Addison, I've been wanting you to meet Eve for the longest time. It could only have been your natural timidity that kept you from mentioning it. You've heard of her great interest in the theater. So there you go. And people who have imitated Betty Davis have often done the R-lessness, whether they were thinking about it or not. An old imitation of her used to go Peter, the letter, instead of Peter, the letter. So what what is that? Well, we naturally think, especially since the Margot Channing character was an actress herself, that we're thinking that there's something trained about it. In particular, that back in the old days, people who were on stage and therefore by extension in movies were trained to sound British because, of course, prestigious British English is R-less. That's a lot of the what we would today think of as the Downton Abbey sound. But Betty Davis wasn't exactly performing that way of talking, because even when she just spoke off the cuff, she sounded like that, too. So, for example, here she is in 1975. This is 25 years after All About Eve. And she's doing an interview with some guy. And you can listen to her talk like Margot Channing. Did you ever feel, because you you cornered a market in Hollywood, didn't you, at one point in your career, of playing a not evil women, but uh, rather... No, some... they were very, very... I played just as many others. You did? Evil is remembered more. Yes, I suppose. Evil is... Uh, for instance, newspaper people know this. You now, know, still, we're thinking Betty Davis was an actress. And we figure maybe there was a certain theatrical quality 
about her. Even though she grew up in Massachusetts and New York City, she was somebody who maybe had reason to imitate British people, especially if she was stage trained. But this arlessness went further than that. So, for example, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Franklin D. Roosevelt was many things. He was not an actor. And yet, let's listen to the famous lines from his first inaugural address where he's talking about us having nothing to fear but fear itself and listen to the way he pronounced fear terror and efforts think about those efforts arlessness here it goes so first of all let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Okay, maybe he was kind of a grandiloquent personality. Well, his wife actually was not. She was a very public person, but a rather shy person. Few people would have called her theatrical. She could fill a room, but she was not a performer. But here's Eleanor Roosevelt, and not making a speech, but talking. It's on TV. It's about Richard Nixon, actually, in 1956. She, too, was an arless person. So listen to her and how she says remember and then character. I happen to remember very clearly his campaign for the senatorship. I had no respect for the way in which he accused Helen Hagen Douglas of being a communist because he knew that was how he would be elected. And I have no respect for the kind of character that takes advantage and does something they know is not true. But still, we think, these were the elite at a time when there was perhaps more of a cultural difference between the American elite and American ordinary people. These are people who went to special schools. These were people who toured Europe. What about if we go lower on the social scale. Let's use somebody like George Gershwin. We don't usually think of George Gershwin as having a voice. We think of his wonderful music. But George Gershwin would have learned to speak growing up on rather mean streets in New York during the first decade of the 20th century. So nobody was telling him that he needed to sound like people in Great Britain. He didn't go to finishing schools or anything like that. He didn't eat aspic. And yet, if you listen to him, he is Arliss as well. George Gershwin for a while had a radio show, and thankfully, some of them survive, and you can actually hear him. He's reading from a script, but still, he's giving us what his voice would have sounded like. Here he is in 1932, and listen to the way he says, theater and there, there instead of there. Charles Dillingham generously gave me the use of the Globe Theater for this private tryout. Mr. Damrush, Ernest Hutchison, and several other musical friends were there. And you can imagine my delight when it sounded just as I had planned. And so, we see that it wasn't only the elite. Now, of course, Gershwin, as he became a prominent person, we could perhaps imagine may have started imitating the elite. But then, what about ordinary sorts of people who really were not among the elite and had no reason to expect to be. So actually, a good example of this would be the characters of Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton on The Honeymooners, played by Jackie Gleason and Art Carney. And despite the fact that these were 
characters, and you could even call them caricatures, few would say that the way those two characters talked had nothing to do with real life, with real sociolinguistic life, as it were, at the time, especially given that, for example, Gleason himself had grown up working class and or poor in Bensonhurst, New York. And yet here they are in one of their classic scenes. This is the one where Ralph needs to learn how to play golf and he's in the big silly golf outfit. And listen first to the way Ralph says heart attack. Give me a heart attack or something. There isn't an R to be heard. And then a little later in the scene, here is Norton. Listen to the way he says smart. What's it saying in a book? How <laughs> are you getting smart? So I don't know if we would say that These are people who wanted to talk like Franklin D. Roosevelt, and they certainly weren't wanting to talk like Neville Chamberlain. They were just talking like themselves. And yet they, like the high muckety-mucks, were Arliss. We hear that Arlessness and we think, well, they're trying to sound British, but it was actually low on the social scale as well as it was high on the social scale. And another indication that Great Britain would have had less to do with it than we might think is that this Arlessness actually skipped cities. And so we would think that if people in New York are interested in sounding British, then Philadelphia, which was a pretty well-connected city for a very long time and still could be argued to be, I speak of it with affection, it's my native city, it's somewhere where presumably people would have wanted to sound British too. And yet Arlessness is not typical of Philadelphia in this time. It's very specific. You hear it among South Philadelphia Italians and Irish people in this time, but not everybody else. And you can actually hear the contrast in this very handy way. The Bilko Show. Technically, you'll never get rich. Most people thought of it as the Phil Silver Show or Sergeant Bilko. Here you have a show that for most of its run was done in New York City. And most of the actors in it were good New Yorkers, working class New Yorkers with good Arliss accents that included Phil Silvers, who had perfect early 20th century working class white Arliss speech. And all of his pals on the show have that too, except there is an exception. And you don't think of it when you're watching the jolly hijinks of the show. But Doberman, who was the chubby, slobby character, was portrayed by Maurice Gosfeld. Maurice Gosfeld, as it happens, was not a New Yorker. Maurice Gosfeld grew up in and near Philadelphia. And wouldn't you know, you can hear that he was awful where the other actors were Arliss. So listen to this scene where first you hear Bilko mixing it up with the other guys under him. And then, as it happens, the Doberman character is separate. And listen to the difference between the way Bilko and his people say car and the way Doberman says car. And you, Ferret, buy me some rummage sales, you understand? We're going to need secondhand furniture. But Sarge, Stuff what are we going to use for money? Please don't bother me with details. We'll run a raffle. What are we going to raffle off? A foreign car. A foreign car? Yeah, I know I can get a hold of a 1927 Huffmobile with Mexican license plates. <laughs> that was a delicious Sunday, Dwayne. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you liked it. There. Comfy cozy? Yes. Oh, Dwayne, I'm so anxious to get home so Mother and Dad can meet you. Oh, an English car. Yes, it is. Does it shift like a Jeep? So that's 1957, and you hear the difference between Arliss, New York, and Arful, Philadelphia. 
It was about the fragility of R. R at the end of a syllable is fragile. We think of R as a consonant, but if you think about it, it's less consonanty than, say, P. With P, you have to put your lips together and you go P. With an R, you're not putting as much together. You're just kind of hinting at it. There's a vowel-y quality about R. So when you have an R at the end of a syllable, it's kind of like fingernails. They get worn down because just sounds are always changing, like clouds are always blowing away in the sky. Sometimes your R's in English are going to drop off, and that'll happen whether or not you're trying to sound like somebody British where that exact same thing happened for the same reason centuries ago. So people back in the day had a different stage of what tends to happen to R's at the end of syllables than us. And so the question becomes, why aren't we R-less if so many people back then were? It's an interesting question. And what we do know is that after World War II, especially among people who were not the elite, like Franklin D. Roosevelt, R-lessness took on a certain stereotypical connotation among many people. It was thought of as the way New Yorkers talk, and it was associated with ignorance in a way that it hadn't been before. So new generations started pronouncing their R's in a mostly subconscious desire to get away from that stereotype. The King foundational sociolinguist William Labov at the University of Pennsylvania did invaluable pioneering work about this, which is also delightfully readable compared to a lot of academic work on any subject. And so that was part of it. It's also been said that mixing between people from various parts of the country during World War II had something to do with the decline of arlessness in the northeastern United States because most people in the United States were R-full. And so if you have all of these soldiers interacting with all these other soldiers who are not arless the way they grew up, maybe that had some effect on the speech that they brought home. But what we know is that after World War II, America started to process arlessness differently and it started to blow away like autumn leaves. Now, sometimes arlessness can come from influence from some other way of speaking, definitely. And so, for example, Southern English has been arless for a long time. And that is certainly due to the fact that slaves brought from Africa rendered English arlessly often because most African languages that they spoke don't have R's at the end of syllables like that. They're more like Japanese. So you have a consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. Ka, lo, mi, ka. Not kar, lor, mir, kar. That's not the way a lot of African languages work. Slaves produced English with influence from the way they put consonants and vowels together. And it's interesting that the state's that our arless in the South overlap rather precisely with where plantation slavery was. So there's a different arlessness story down there. But when we're talking about why Betty Davis or Franklin D. Roosevelt talk like that, it's really the story of what you could call the linguistic equivalent of split ends. Now, what about something else about the way people talk in old things? Something that stands out is what we often think of as oi instead of er. It's something we associate with Popeye and thugs. And so instead of somebody saying first, they say the feist. Instead of saying, let's go to work, they go to woik. Your feist takes aim, then you throws it. Now, actually, it's not oi. Nobody has ever said joisy. It's oi. 
it's the sound uh like in foot and then little squeak afterwards. And so Jay-Z, feist. But it's definitely there. And our primary association with that is probably working class, mostly male characters usually played for comedy. And that's where it certainly stands out. But if you really listen to people in the past, you find that that was more common than you'd think. If we went back to, say, 1930, after we got used to the cigarettes and how much easier it was to die of a disease and what the cars looked like and the fact that you would not have eaten much broccoli. Broccoli was not popular in American cuisine until the 30s, actually. You weren't going to get any of that after you stopped missing broccoli. Then one thing you would notice is that people of all walks were saying feist instead of first and wake instead of work. It always kind of jabs my ear a little bit to hear it. When you listen to somebody like, we can use Gershwin again. Here is this man, grew up on the streets of New York. He's smoking his cigar. He's in his tailored suit. He's in a studio. He's sounding good on the radio in an era when, when you went on the radio, you tried to use speech in its Sunday best. This is a man who has cleared his throat and wants to sound good, and he's reading. And yet, listen to the way he, in all of his poise and refinement, pronounces the word first. It was first played in Carnegie Hall on December 3rd and 4th, 1925. Since then, the concerto has been played by many symphony orchestras here and abroad. Tonight with the orchestra, I will play you the third movement of my concerto in F. So, it's a rainy night in Brooklyn. It's March 23rd, 1950. A certain man is being celebrated for 30 years of service at a Jewish community center. And various people get up and speak. This was, for some reason, recorded. And the recording survives. It's actually my great-uncle-in-law's father who's being celebrated. So we're listening to people who, a very long time ago, are talking. They don't expect to be heard. This isn't for national broadcast, as they would have called it back then. They're just talking to each other. Here is a Dr. Israel Leventhal. He's trying to sound publicly appropriate, so he's not trying to sound cartoonish or anything. Listen to the way he says concern and working. His judicious understanding and profound concern have elicited the warmest response of the directors and the membership of our institution under his able leadership. He has been in constant contact with the daily problems that face our institution and has given his time, his energy, working in closest harmony with our guests of honor. It is my great privilege to present our president, Judge Emanuel Greenberg. We see that that oi for er, it wasn't just Popeye. It wasn't only a lower class way of speaking. This was something that was very common. And once again, it's because of the randomness of language. This oi is a kind of fraying of er in the same way as arlessness is a kind of fraying of what used to be an actual r. And it happens all the time. You would almost expect it. In fact, it's not only in the sort of gas house gang of New York City and other big cities in the Northeast. For example, stereotypically, we think of it as being something that someone like Jimmy Durante would use. And indeed he did. Here's Jimmy Durante singing a rather minor song on 50s television. And listen to the way he says the word turns. He takes a nice curly hair, turns it great. 
naturally. We expect that from Jimmy Durante. That's the way it dines. That's the sort of person we associate it with. However, in this duet, he's actually singing with Louis Armstrong. And listen to how Louis Armstrong pronounced his errs as we go on in the song. Listen in particular to the word worth. He's a dog. He's a dog. All your dreams and your schemes ain't worth the dime. So what this shows us is that that er to e is not just the mean streets of New York City. It's something that was also true of, for example, Southern black people like Louis Armstrong. Sometimes it's said to be just New Orleans because Louis Armstrong was from New Orleans. But actually, you hear it from quite a few Southerners. It's a trait not only of black Southerners, but of white Southerners. It's in retreat now, but very common in the old days. My mother's family, the older people in my mother's family, definitely said shirt for shirt for example. Here's another example, just random, where you don't expect to hear it. The Jimmy Lunsford Band was a little bit undersung, but actually, for aficionados, it was one of the best of the swing bands, particularly in the 30s. Lunsford tended, frankly, not to have the best singers, and that's part of why he doesn't have more mainstream affection today. One of his singers was a certain Dan Grissom. And, well, you know, singing styles do date, but Dan Grissom was black. Dan Grissom's history is obscure, but he may well have been born in Mississippi. It was certainly the South, because listen to him singing, frankly, an awful song. I'm not playing this for the quality, but his vowels are just quite different from what we would expect. Here we go. That's lost in the rain. I'm rocking, I'm reeling, I'm searching in vain. I'm trying hard to find the girl that once was mine. Then I'll be happy again. I'm like a ship without a stern. I don't know where to turn. I've been torn a lot of things that I've tried hard not to It sounds so strange today, but that is not anybody Jimmy Durante knew. And this wasn't performative. So it's not just that Jimmy Durante was a character and I don't know what Dan Grissom was doing, but we can hear Armstrong just talking. That man was obsessed with taping himself, just chewing the fat in his home, in his house in Corona, Queens, which you can still take a tour of. And so you get to hear A man born in the Deep South, black in his case, just talking. This is Armstrong in some banter with his wife late night. And listen to, for example, the way he pronounced percolating. You know that horn comes first, then you and your razor. Bullshit. I come first and then the horn. Yeah. You tell me what you you want. You can tell me what you want. You can run your mouth. You can tell me what you want. Right? That's what keeps your ass happy. You keep my ass happy. The ain't percolating. I ain't in the mood to fuck with nobody. You so it's up to you to keep the heart percolating. Turn your table. So, the Jimmy Durante feist. It makes many people feel quite warm to hear it who had nothing to do with buildings being torn up and put back up in Manhattan. Another odd thing about people and the way they talk like that in the old days. And this is something that first occurred to me when I would have been about 15. I was BSing with a bunch of guys around my locker 
in school and we were imagining somebody getting old and just within the flow of it all, I imitated how this person would sound when they got old. And I did something like, well, Sonny, give it to me. And one person asked, I'm even going to say the name of this person in case by any chance he's listening. It was Teddy. I imagine now he would go by Ted. Ted Gross said, well, wait a minute. Why would he get a Southern accent just because he got old? And I had never really thought about that. I figured when the person gets old, then they're going to start saying sunny and they're going to have this quote unquote corn pone accent. Where did I get that? I got that from old popular culture where at a certain point, and a lot of this pop culture was on TV more back then in the late 70s than it is now. You got the feeling that to be old was somehow to gradually develop a Southern accent. And so, for example, one of the best of the Looney Tunes, there were over a thousand and no, they weren't all great, but there are certain two or three hundred. The old gray hair in 1944, where Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd get old, is one of them that's well nigh perfect. Part of where I got this idea that to be old is to talk like an old gold prospector is that it happens with Bugs Bunny when he gets old. So in this one, you know, Bugs Bunny starts out with the normal voice and then listen to what happens when he's on a cane with a beard. Somehow his voice has nothing to do with what you would expect the young rabbit to have talked like when he became an old rabbit. So listen to this. You ain't got me yet, my gum. Stop a wild shoot! Stop a wild shoot! Dang the torpedoes! Full speed ahead! See? That doesn't sound like how Bugs Bunny's voice would have come out. Or the old radio show, Fibber, McGee, and Molly. One of the few old radio shows, frankly, that really would hold up to some extent with almost anybody. Sorry, old radio fans, to say that, but I am one of you, and I'm really thinking about playing these shows for somebody, say, about 30 and under. Fibber, McGee still works. I, I've seen it happen. Here's a show that's taking place in Wistful Vista, which is supposed to be some Midwestern small town, and most people in Wistful Vista just talk like whatever. But then there's this character who's always dropping by called the old timer. And the old timer is another one of these sort of sunny down home sorts of people. But nobody else in Wistful Vista talks like this. You kind of wonder why does he have those speech patterns when everybody else just sounds kind of generically 1938. Here's an example of one of the old timers entrances. <laughs> That's pretty good, Johnny. But that ain't the way I hear it. <laughs> The way I hear it, one feller says to the other feller, she says, see where a couple of our prominent citizens have been accepting medals from them foreign dictators. Well, says t'other feller, you can't blame them. They didn't know they was being decorated with a double cross. Well, that ain't the way I heard it, Johnny. That's nice, but... Why does he talk like that? For the record, that is um, Bill Thompson, who also did the voice of Droopy. Many of you may remember him doing the voice of Smee in Peter Pan. He was incredibly versatile. But why did he choose this country voice for the old person? And then one more, very common in Looney Tunes, that if you have a grandmother, the grandmother, for some reason, talks like a hick. So here, the wolf is going through the Red Riding Hood story, and he finds Granny in bed. And he wants to get Granny out fast because he's really busy because somehow the three little pigs have been mixed into the story. This is 1949. 
A Wind Blown Hair was the name of the cartoon. And listen to B. Benaderet, who talk about versatility. She was also Betty Rubble. B. Benaderet doing this granny. Man sakes, Wolfie, ain't you going to eat me? Ain't got time, Grandma. Now come on, get moving. Come on, come on, take a leg. Hit the road. Goodness, can't a body get her shawl tied? Heavens to bits. So what? What is it? Land sakes, Wolfie, ain't you gonna eat me? Can a body get? Why does she talk like that just because she's old? And in Looney Tunes, they did that over and over again, including certain things that the more famous Granny in the Sylvester and Tweety cartoons would say. Why is it that as you get old, your speech patterns somehow go south? And actually, it made sense back then because 1930 was the first year shown in the census that most Americans lived in cities. Before that, America was fundamentally a rural country and cities were seen as other and as dangerous. And you can see that in older literature where to depict people living in a city is to depict people living in what was thought of as a rather exotic place, certainly not the real America. And a little later, you have Sinclair Lewis and Willa Cather writing about their small town experiences when they were young. They've come to cities, but their thought is that their small town experience embodies what America is. America needs to face its small town essence. That's not the way we think today. And we stopped thinking of it that way in about 1930. But that meant that in the 30s and the 40s, it may well have been that an older person in the family or an older person of your acquaintance had grown up in the country, not necessarily in the South, but stereotypes are always messy, in the country, whereas you grew up in the city. An interesting example of this, for those who want to do a little bit of digging, is a movie called Make Way for Tomorrow, which is about what it was like to care for older people before there was Social Security. And in that movie, you see the difference in speech patterns between people who had grown up before 1930 out in small towns versus people who grew up in New York. I doubt if they were thinking about it, but it actually rather nicely showed what the perception was of the way Ma or Ma talked as opposed to the way you talked and the way your children were going to talk. And therefore... In these old pop culture tokens, you will see that old people, for some reason, were hickish in their speech, whereas somehow if you were younger than about 50, you talked the way everybody else around you talked. So that's one case where it isn't just the randomness of language, but cultural factors that affected the way language was depicted in popular entertainment. Tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Mike Wolo, and I'm John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. band of gold a patient can develop a cold you can spray her wherever you figure the streptococci I like you can give her a shot for whatever she's got but it just won't work if she's tired of getting that fish eye from the hotel clerk a patient 
Valapakal.